So, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now, and uh, we ask that you would gather us this morning. We, we claim that you've been gathering us. We may have thought we made the choice to be here today, but behind our choice is your deeper choice for us, bringing us here. And you're not just bringing us here, but you're building us up. You're making us new, and we know that you make beautiful things. And then we also confess that you just, you're not just making us new and making us beautiful, but you're giving us a purpose. You're not just gathering us and building us up, but you are also sending us. So God, we pray that the word that comes today would be a sending word and that it would move us and that we would find ourselves caught up in your movement into the world in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray saying, amen. Hey everyone, so... Um, this morning, I'm going to continue in a conversation that began a couple weeks ago. If you remember, a few weeks back, we um, were preaching through uh, John chapter 1 and looking at what the incarnation has to say for the church and its mission in the world. So we're allowing that incarnation of Jesus, the full event of God's life in Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection and ascension, that whole Jesus event what that has to say for us in terms of how we then, as a church, are called to live and be and do in the world. And, um, and how that then shapes our sense of mission and our sense of purpose. What it looks like to live incarnationally. And I want to continue building off of that conversation this morning. And I'm going to do it a little differently. And I'm, I, I confess to a little trepidation because I, this is going to be a bit more conversational. I want to get you to participate with me in what that looks like. And so there's going to be some space for you to actually, I, I know we're kind of spread out, but I'm going to try to facilitate you sharing some of your insights, what you're seeing and what, what that means for us. And so then, with that, and by that, I hope that we're like beginning to own what it is that we believe, what we preach, what we proclaim here. And there's something about getting you to talk back to me, I think, that helps do that. I remember when I was doing uh, high school ministry, I used to spend all this time preparing Bible studies, and I, I had this mentality, like, it's my job to download all that information to the kids that I was working with. And then I realized that that isn't always the most helpful for them in their growth. If I could really get them to talk and own it, and there's something about speaking uh, which is a part of the ownership of that, then they actually ha uh, engaged that material that much more. So I might communicate only 10% of what I had learned, but they were learning that much more, right? And so I think I want to try to take a similar approach. So I invite you to be brave and be courageous. And if you um, hear, if you have an insight or thought that you want to share, would you get my attention? because I really do want to hear that. If it's appropriate for the time and space, I think God had, might have something to share to us through you, okay? So we're going to return to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You can read along uh, up above. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man, and I want to pay attention to this now, okay? There was a man, who, who, man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made him known. Amen. And what I love about this passage is its beauty in, in terms of how it talks about this life-giving, generating God who in freedom chooses to come to us, to be there for us and be in us and with us. The Emmanuel, God with us. Not just God with us, God for us. So that Jesus comes into the world to reveal the very heart of God. He puts a face to this God that we do not know and deny, right? And when we look at him, somehow then we begin to understand the full capacity of what it means to be the God life that embodies itself in the world. And so it's that life, the, Jesus, the life of Jesus in, his, in the totality of his existence that gives meaning and purpose to our lives, what it means to be the church. See, his people didn't really know him. But there were those who testified to Jesus, and it's through their testimony that they came to know him. Does that make sense? So I want to explore today what it means to witness to Jesus. Do you see in that passage, there's this song section where it starts talking about this guy named John, right? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. Now, who was that? John the Baptist, right? Uh, and we're real familiar with John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness, and other um, accounts of him talk about him being clothed in funny clothes and eating funny things like honey and whatnot and baptizing all sorts of people. You know, in John's gospel, he's not as pronounced or he's not as prominent as the other synoptic gospels. And yet, here we find in this account of the Word made flesh, this couple verses about a guy who has come to testify to Jesus, to, to testify to that word. And I think what's going on here is that the gospel writer, John, whose also name is, is, whose also name is John, um, is saying, hey, look, this is the sum total, the meaning, the purpose of this guy, John the Baptist's life, to give witness to the word made flesh. Right? And not only is he speaking about John the Baptist to talk about the meaning of that person's life, I think he's also saying this is the meaning and sum total and purpose of what I, John, the writer of the gospel, am trying to do. This whole document that I wrote, this letter, this, this gospel, is, its whole purpose is to point to, 
to witness to this Jesus, the Word made flesh. And I think he's also got an agenda beyond that. Not only is it John the Baptist and the meaning of his life and John the Gospel writer, but I think he's also saying, this is the meaning and purpose of all other Johns who find themselves in Jesus and their purpose is to witness, to give, to testify, to point to Jesus, the Word made flesh. So I could sit here and tell you then what that looks like and means for you, but I think there's a difference between you hearing me talk about it and you seeing what it looks like. So I want to share with you an image. And if we could dim the lights, thanks. This is a famous painting by a guy by the name of Matthias Grunwald. Here's some backstory to, his, to him. Matthias uh, Grunwald was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He lived around the early 1500s. And we don't have a lot of, wor- uh, of his work that remaining. But what we do have, this uh, image of the crucifixion, has made him very well known. He was commissioned by, by this little town, a monastery in a little town called Eisenheim, which sits in the, on the border between Germany and France, in between Basel and Strasbourg, to um, do this work, this painting. And that monastery was well known. It was dedicated to the St. Anthony, and it was well known for its um, work of healing. It was like a hospital. And uh, in the monastery, monastery, they had all sorts of people who were struggling with their health, especially with skin diseases and other things like that. So they had leprosy and and that sort of thing. And and in the middle of the monastery, uh, they had a huge display of this painting. It's cool, huh? Uh, you keep it down. Um, so here, here's what I want you to do. Uh, oh, and then I want to add this thing. This, this came to my attention through the fact that for 50 years, this uh, replication of this painting sat and hung in front of Karl Barth's writing desk. And he looked at it every day. And it was a reminder to him of his life's work, the meaning and purpose of that work as he wrote his, um, his um, dogmatics, his life, the 9,000 pages of systematic theology, every day he looked at this painting. For there was something about this painting that told him something true about his vocation, his, his life, what it meant for him to be a Christian. And I think at many points also he said, and this tells us too what it means to be a Christian. So take this image in for a second. Look at it. Look at the characters there. And look at the story it's telling. And I want to ask you, who are these characters surrounding Jesus? And what do they tell us about what it means to be a Christian? Okay, so let's keep this image up uh, online also. And, and uh, take a moment. And who are these characters And what do they tell us about what it means to be a Christian? Does that make sense? Who's got some thoughts? Okay, Santino. That person is blaming him for some, or sacrificing his life, and that dog is there to back him up. That means that that person right there is a coward. Okay, so the the, the dog is actually a lamb, right? Okay, and and you... Okay, and thanks. The other people are grieving because they're like, that's not right. There's this grieving going on. Okay, thanks, Santino. Other sharing, right? 
that's Jesus' mother. That's Jesus. Which one's Jesus' mother? I think, I th I, it is Mary, but I think Jesus' mother is actually the white one, grieving in that way, right? But I do think that's Mary. Who would that, on her knees, who would that be? Mary Magdalene, right? And what does that, what is she doing? Mark? Oh, she's worshiping, right? You know, so her posture is one of worship. So isn't that interesting? It makes me think of that passage in the, in the New Testament in one of the Gospels where it says, to much who's been forgiven, one who has been forgiven much loves much. Who else is present there? That's John, the Gospel writer, right? Holding, and what is he doing? Yeah, Jesus told him to take care of her, and so he's comforting her, right? Okay, and, and who's the one on the right? You think it's Moses because it's? Oh, I get, I see, I didn't, yeah, <laughs> I didn't think about that. Um, actually, good guess, but it's uh, John the Baptist, okay? Huh? Wasn't he already dead, right, right? Exactly. So uh, there's something going on here that more than just a linear story, right? There's meaning to this story that's being told. And what's that meaning? What do those, so we have John the Baptist, we have John the Gospel writer, we have Mary the mother of Jesus, and we have Mary Magdalene. We have someone pointing to Jesus, we have another person comforting his mother, we have another person worshiping. What do those figures tell you about what it means to be a Christian? Yeah. I, I couldn't hear that. Mary's lap. In Mary's lap, I don't see, I see a vase at, no, at her no, feet. No. Yep, that's her, her uh, the anointing oil. I think that's a robe that you're seeing. No, it's a person. Which person do you see? On the left. With Mary? I think that, that that's part of her, her, her uh, gown that you're seeing, right? So, real quickly, what does this tell you about Jesus, or about what it means to be a Christian? Yeah, Kimberly. Uh-huh. Huh. Oh, yeah, I really like that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so she's in white, so she's like the bride, God's, uh, Christ's bride, right, the church. Oh, that's a great insight. I didn't even think about that. Here's a couple things that I really like about this painting. One, I really love John the Baptist and how he's pointing, right? His whole purpose in life, I think, in this painting is to say the same thing that we read in the gospel, that his whole purpose in life is to point to Jesus. I also like where he's pointing. Do you see that? He's pointing to his side. There's a, if you can't tell, there's a wound in his side where blood is flowing. And remember the context in which, oh, I love his posture. It's like he's open. Do you see that? He's open to us and open to the world, and yet every, our eyes are taken in and then drawn up 
to Jesus. Do you see that? And so his whole purpose is to point to Jesus. Okay? Do you see the, the Bible there or the scriptures? It's, it's almost like he's saying the sum total of the Bible also is a witness. It points to Jesus. You, you, you think he maybe is saying repent in this? Okay. Yeah. It's. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I'm open to that. I, like, for me, what I love is, like, when he points to Jesus. Well, here's another thing. Think about the context. So, he's in a. Uh, this painting is in a monastery with a bunch of people who are sick and have skin diseases and whatnot. And here is a Jesus who's depicted who looks just like them. There's a, this is a God who, who knows their suffering. And by pointing to him and to his side, it's almost like John is saying, if you're looking for healing, this is where you find it. That's what I like about that. Or here's another thing. I love the posture of worship. That, so uh, I love the posture of worship of Mary Magdalene where she's worshiping Jesus. And so part of what it means to be a Christian is to worship him, so to point to him, to worship him, right? Oh, it all like melts together? Oh, did you hear that? So Nick was kind of sharing the saying, if you look at the tones at the bottom, her, her reflects a lot of the same Jesus in terms of its tones, but the top, maybe she's bringing some of her crap, her, her sin to him. It's an interesting thought. How about, yeah. When I look at it, I see people worshiping someone who's Yeah. Are we going to worship love? Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys hear that? So what? What's your name? Nate, Nate is sharing. He's saying, um, if you're sick and you're looking at and you're worshiping someone who's dying, if the question is raised, are we going to worship someone, a love that seems to die, right? And yet bookended by all the, it's love, love, love. And as Kimberly pointed this out in staff that I really liked, I love John, the gospel writer, how his posture as he cares, cares for um, Mary, right? His posture looks just like Jesus' posture. Do you see that? Like the inclination of his head, the inclining towards her. And to me, it almost feels like, oh, wait a second. As we mirror and reflect him and sir, in the service of others, we are actually worshiping him. We are living out our vocation. These are great thoughts. I want to keep moving us. What about the yeah. lamb, too? That, I mean, the lamb is just kind of, this is a very chaotic moment. Yeah. Like, there's got to be agonizing. There's got to be screaming. There's got to be, you know, and the lamb is just kind of sitting there as if it's a peaceful moment, as if it's like some kind of meadow. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, the sun is shining and all this stuff. It's like, well, why is the lamb sitting there? Well, Maybe it's because he's with his shepherd. Maybe it's because he's with his shepherd. No, yeah. Or how about the lamb that shows up at the, and the cup? There's also a cup down there 
that show up in the book of Revelation as if all of human history is driving towards this point. Okay? And focus on this. I see you back there. His hands, I can't quite hear you, Carrie. I can't hear her. Can someone? His hands are in agony, right? Yeah. Yes, this is what we're called to almost, there's worship in suffering, right? Especially for the sake of others. And it's interesting too, like that cross is almost like bowed because it's, do you see that? Under the weight of the sin that he's carrying. And do you see his size? It's much bigger than John. In fact, there's a little writing above John's hand that says, I must decrease that he might increase. There's so much beautiful stuff going on here. And here's what I want to say. You can bring the lights back up. So here's what, so Karl Barth has this image front and center as he goes about his work. And, and what he does then, and part of his work is, he, um, one of the things he does in his dogmatics is he teases out for the church the sense, he reclaims or brings back this conversation about vocation, right? There's a lot of, during the Reformation and then afterwards, there was a lot of talk about justification, uh, how we're made right with God, sanctification, how we live a right life. But um, early on, there was conversation about vocation, what our purpose is, what we're called to. But over time, that sense of vocation falls away. And Bart says, look, we need to reclaim vocation, a sense of our vocation as Christians, and root it in the same way that we root our justification, sanctification, and vocation in this person of Jesus. And so I want to talk with you about what it means to reclaim Christian vocation. And like I said, vocation first came on the scene in Christian conversation during the Reformation with a guy by the name of Martin Luther. And he, um, around 1500, started talking in such a way, up until that point, when people talked about vocation, they talked about it in relationship to the priestly order. Because vocation is a Latinized word for simply calling, okay? And when people talked about what it meant to be called, they only talked about it in terms of priests being called to ministry. Does that make sense? And then Martin Luther shows up and he says, actually, we've all been called. We've all been given a vocation and all of our life is to be offered to God. And so he looked at all these ways in which everyone's jobs, for instance, um, were a, a part of their vocation to Jesus. So he'd say, God, when we pray, uh, God, give us our daily bread, right? God chooses to give us that bread through the farmers who plant the seed and, and till, till the soil and plant the seed and harvest it, um, the millers who grind that wheat, the bakers who bake that bread, and so that, all of their jobs are part of, uh, are actually vocations in which God feeds the world. Or when um, God could, another example he gave was, God could just populate the world with every generation, but instead he chooses to give us a vocation of family life and marriage and the raising of kids, and all of that is for the benefit of others. 
You see that? So, so for Martin Luther, there was this beautiful tapestry, this interconnected web, a social web, where people are serving one another and being served through the, their tasks and the jobs and their family life and so on and so forth, right? And this was all a part of and came under the rubric of their vocation in life. Now, what happens, as oftentimes happens when we engage Christianity, is people began to reduce the concept of vocation down to merely jobs, right? To the point where today, when we talk about your vocation, what are we usually talking about? In common English parlance, it's your job. It's your, it's your career. And you find that in Webster's dic Dictionary, actually. And so, what Bart does, and so what Bart does is say, hey, listen, we've reduced the gospel. We've reduced the concept of what it means to have a Christian vocation to only talking about jobs. And there's this, he refines it, he says there's this deeper, more um, profound purpose to what it means to be a Christian. He says we can't just reduce um, a vocation to jobs or even um, to talk more broadly, even if you don't think about what it means to be a Christian th and through the lens of like, your job that you uh, have, you, we definitely do it kind of abstractly into what it means to be a Christian. So let me give you ex some examples of some false vocations that we've reduced Christianity to. And we say it's the job of Christians to judge, right? Judge the world, judge other people, judge what's right and what's wrong. And yet, who's the ultimate judge? Yeah, God is, Jesus. And Jesus is the judge judged in our place. Or we reduce it to, um, it's the job of Christians to save. So I remember when I was a junior high uh, youth leader, we used to talk like, how many kids did you save this weekend at the retreat? Isn't that bizarre? What a bizarre language. And yet that was how we talked about things. We, it's, 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 it's the job of Christians to save people. And yet, what does the name of Jesus mean? God saves. Or we, we, we reduce the gospel and what it means to be Christian to what we build, right? It's our job to work for God, build his kingdom. And yet he is bringing his kingdom in Jesus. Jesus shows up and says, in your presence now, the kingdom of God has drawn near, right? Now let me ask you a question. Again, interact with me. What are some of the other reductions of the gospel, reductions of what it means to be a Christian, where we, can, where we tell ourselves it's the job of a Christian to what? False vocations. Live a moral life. Did you hear that? As if it's our job to be a moral example to the world. And so we make Christianity all about morality, and we turn it into moralism. Give me another example. Okay, so it's the job of Christians to fight evil, right? Okay, and certainly that's a part of it, but when we make it all about um, that, then we see a bunch of Christians as if they've got little flashlights trying to sniff out all the, nook, the dark corners of the world, right? Rather than just letting their light shine. Give me another example of false, false job descriptions. I can't see. To be perfect, right? It's our job to be perfect. And so what does that do then? When, we, when we, we put on false selves 
And so we create environments where people actually can't be open, honest, transparent, and receive forgiveness or experience grace. Give me one more. Does that, someone have one more? To pass judgment. Right, like I was say, saying. Angelo's right on it. Huh? To have all the answers. Or like Francis shared something up in the Foothills community. To defend God. Or to explain God. Or to give, um, make him look better. Does that make sense? These are all false vocations, false ideas of the job description of Christians. Okay, I love that. So here's another one, right? The profession, she said, it's, what about it's the reverend's job to do all this, right? The professionalization of Christianity. So I'm, as a pastor, the professional Christian, and you all pay me to do your job for you. <laughs> That's false, people. Don't, <laughs> don't cheer that on. That's, that's what we call a reduction of the gospel. It's where we boil it down, right? We turn it into a nutshell. You'll hear that all the time. The gospel in a nutshell, where we, where we boil it down and turn it into like manageable port parts. And why do we do that? Why do you think we do that? Why do we reduce the gospel from this grand, beautiful, gorgeous thing to all these little... Right, like, it's almost like... So we can manage it. We can control it, right? And in that control, then we feel safe. And in that control, we feel like we're in right standing, okay? Here's the, and what Bart does, what I love, and he exposes for us, is he says, we've really, we've really reduced the gospel in the West to a, a, a really actually fairly bizarre reduction, and we've made it all about personal salvation. Personal individual salvation, where your eternal destiny is a after you die. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about, I shared a quote from Leslie Newbegin, one of my favorite uh, theologians who says, listen, if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. And for 500 years, if not longer, we've been asking the wrong question, primary question. Who's in? Who's out? How am I saved? Who are the elect? Et cetera, et cetera. We have all different ways of doing it, but it's the same basic question of salvation. And what Newbigin says is that's the wrong question to be asking. The right question is, how is one glorified? How is God glorified in this life? And the salvation question comes under that larger encompassing question of God's glory. And what Bart says is, if we, if we reduce the gospel down to personal salvation, then God saves just for our own sake, and then we ask, when we begin asking the question, oh, I'm saved, what about other people? And for, you know, they must be damned. And we go through all that, we work out all this theological mumbo jumbo up to justify that rationale. That, um, we create logical systems to do that. But we also lose then sight of this larger purpose for our life. If God's just saving to get us into heaven, right, then what's to be about the rest of your life? And what Bart says is you are not just, God does not just save for your own sake. God saves you to something. For, he calls you, he gives you a vocation for a purpose. He brings meaning to your life as a Christian. And he saves you for the purpose of witness, so that you might, like John the Baptist, point to Jesus. 
so that the world might know this gospel of love and grace and mercy and freedom, this grand vision for the cosmos and what God is up to. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's gorgeous. And you then are given a task, saved with a purpose, not for privilege. See, that's what we do when we reduce the gospel to all about personal salvation. There must be something about me that's special or privileged. I'm in, a, I'm in the in crowd with God. But rather, we realize that God calls and pulls us out and builds us up and sends us for a purpose, for a responsibility, to be his witnesses in the world. Does that make sense? And so here's what's kind of just awesome then, if we start to think it through. It begins to give meaning to your life. That the gospel of Jesus, the full gospel of Jesus is on display in and through his people, living in and through and for the world. This full gospel of God's love that uh, like includes the healing of creation, the establishment of justice, the overthrow of oppressive systems that are over and against God's reign, God's rule. This is the message that the people of God are to proclaim but in the proclaiming of that message, that message of grace that we talk a lot about here at the sanctuary, it by definition includes a call to discipleship that ultimately finds its conclusion in apostolate or the sending of the church. God calls, he gathers, he builds up, and then he sends his people into the world so that the world might know the love of God in Jesus Christ. They, that's the vocation of the church, to give witness to him. So, how do we do that, <laughs> right? How do we take a message that we, we talk about here a lot, and how do we allow it to hit the streets? I want to, to finish our conversation here, like look at three different ways in which we um, live out our calling as witness. First, we live out our calling as witness in what we do. Francis of Assisi is attributed to say this, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. So what does that mean? What? I, speak louder. Actions. Uh, actions speak louder than words, right? Actions first. Uh, here's what I, I think it also means. I think it means your whole life is a proclamation. Does that make sense? Your whole life is preaching Jesus. Everything you do is a proclamation of something. So what are you going to preach with your life? What I think, though, Pastor, yeah. is, is your heart. Yeah. If you don't have no love, how can you love Jesus if you don't love anybody or do anything for the Right. Yourself? So if you're not loving others, right, then do you really, have you really experienced his, love. his love? God is love, right, Santino? You can't love God and hate yourself or whatever at the same time. Right. I agree. Yep, let's give... I agree. 
So that's my second point. You're anticipating all, where I'm going, right? So like, here's, so how do we let our lives proclaim something, speak? Well, let me give you a suggestion, okay? Begin by paying attention. Paying attention to what is motivating you. And let me give you another uh, deeper suggestion. Pay attention more specifically to all the shoulds that you tell yourself, okay? When, do you know what I mean by that? As a Christian, we tell ourselves a whole bunch of shoulds. Okay, well, I think that's a cue on something. What it, it, what it means is, is there's a reduction of the gospel that's going on that you've been told that it, this is what it means to be a Christian and therefore I should do this, right? So when you are telling yourself I should, then perhaps, perhaps, you're not listening to the true gospel, okay? So pay attention. And then begin by then paying attention to the promptings that God gives you naturally, right? So one of the things that I try to do is when I encounter other people, I pay attention to those people that I'm curious about or I want to know their story or I find interesting or whatever. And, not, and then rather than ignoring that impulse, I seek that out. I, 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 go, I don't worry about, hey, I can't be everything to everybody. And there's always that temptation for a pastor to do that, right? But there's no way I can. But I can pay attention to those people that God has brought across my path that make me curious and interested. And I can pursue that relationship. That's one of the ways you can begin to let your life preach, okay? And another way is pay attention to those people who are interested in you. You notice those people that keep coming by and, and are curious about you and want to be a friend to you? Well, maybe God's bringing them across your path. And if that's going on, then God might be weaving this beautiful social community where others are serving one another and being served by them through their attention to one another. That's one way in which you can allow your life preach. But there's a second aspect, and this is what Deb was getting to, and that is we witness in what we say, right? It's not just enough to let your life preach through your actions. I think sometimes we gravitate to a quote by Francis Assisi like that because we're actually uncomfortable or maybe even ashamed to talk about Jesus. What goes on inside of us that does that? Well, I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times, the things that censor me from talking about Jesus is I'm afraid that I'm going to make other people feel uncomfortable or that I'm afraid that they will judge me or I'm afraid that people will feel like I'm preaching to them or I'm afraid, you know, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? And so we kind of censor ourselves. But here's the thing. If we let our life preach but we do not speak about our love for him, Jesus, then how will the world know that the things that drive us to act the way we do are because we love the God we love? And what we're, f Nick, go ahead. Louder, please. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how we go about this. And it's like, a lot of times we think about the witness that we do or say as if God is our possession. Uh -huh. As if we, we, and we tell something With us. Not, part of the witness is to tell about what is God doing in your life, in the crack. Yep. Right? It's, it, the witness is not to say, Jesus loves you and he died for you. That's not it alone. But to yeah. say, the reason I'm telling you this is because God is constantly in my life dealing with my crap. I'm his possession. He loves me. And I'm being transformed. And you cannot tell the story without telling 
the crack that you're in. Yeah. We so often divorce that. So yeah. it's this like mental thing. Head knowledge. Head knowledge. And so that's why we don't feel uh, compelled to tell it because maybe our inward life with God is not really active. Right. And, and what we're finding, and this is, I want to build off of what Nick's saying here. He's saying that you have to have congruity. When you talk about Jesus, it has to be the Jesus that has impacted you, right? And what we're finding is, when we, like Robin and I, we started exploring this, and we, what we found is, when we spoke authentically about the God we love, who makes himself known to us in Jesus, in personal ways, that people actually like hearing about that Jesus, right? Here's what they don't like. They don't like when you, they feel like they're be, they've become a program or an agenda or that you're trying to influence or um, there's a third end in mind. But when there's like this natural God talk that's going on in your life and you allow yourself to speak freely and openly about the Jesus that you're in relationship with, that actually is very compelling to people. Now, I need to keep us moving because this gets going long, right? But that you might be going, okay, oh, wait, uh, that's fine for you, Andrew, because you've got a lot of practice talking about God and Jesus and all that stuff. But I don't feel comfortable talking about him naturally, right? I don't do that at home very much. I don't do that with my neighbors, my coworkers. That doesn't feel natural. So how do we have our, our conversation and our witness um, through what we do, feel congruent to who we are? How does that become a part of the culture, uh, the life that we live? Well, that's my third point. We witness in our life together. So Leslie Newbegin says this, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Does that make sense? Do you see what he's saying? He's basically saying, if you really want to know this uh, gospel of this good news, it has to be witnessed by others in the life of the community. And so what I think that means is that the community becomes this great incubator of our witness, right? That remember what John the, said in one of his epistles? He said, they will know you are Christians by your love for one another. So there's something about the way in which we live our life together that begins to incubate within us our witness to the world as we love one another, as we confess and experience forgiveness from one another, as we help and care and serve one, other, one another, as we lift up and build up and glorify one another, all that, as we talk about Jesus together, all that is a way in which we begin to um, build a culture in which our witness becomes natural to who we are. And so as we witness to each other, we then it opens the vistas for how we can witness to the world. Let me give you one last thought with that, and that is, that means, I, I talked about this a few weeks, uh, maybe a month ago, that means we're called to model Jesus to each other. I was reminded about the importance of this when Robin and I were moving here from New Jersey, and we stopped off to visit some friends in Richmond, Virginia, and while we were there, we, um, we, uh, we were in conversation in the living room and our friend Libby, she uh, had the door open to the outside and she happened to see uh, a postman walking by and she said, hey, Anthony, I think that was his name, Anthony, come on over here. How are you doing? 
how's life going? How's your brother? Is he still in jail? Or did he? And she knew like all these personal details about his life and his story, and she was inquisitive and caring, and it was like she, I just sat there going, wow, look at Libby. She's doing this so naturally. She's probably not thinking, boy, I'm this great model, right? But she was modeling to me what it means to give witness to Jesus through care and interest in other people, not with any agenda, but because they are there, right? And what's really cool about this is I watched as she was engaged in this conversation with the mailman, her son Isaiah standing behind her, clasping his arms around her leg, peering out. He was probably three years old at the time and looking and watching his mother talk to this person the way she did. And I thought, wow, what a witness, not just to me, but to her son, to her family. We are called to model Jesus to one another. So not with any kind of self-consciousness, but just in our life. And Jesus promises he's gonna show up. He's gonna incarnate his life in and through you and me to one another. And that is the, the deepest way in which we grow in our witness for the world. And it's beautiful and it's natural and it's compelling and it's winsome and it lives out our vocation for witness. Let me put it this way. If you have experienced God's love poured out in your life, then by definition, you have become a witness to that love and not for your own sake, but for the sake of the world. You've been called, you've been given a vocation and that vocation gives meaning and purpose to your life. It gives meaning and purpose to everything that you do, everything that you say, the life that you live. Yes, that means it gives purpose and meaning to your job, but it also gives meaning to your home life and to your, your relationships within your neighborhood and your city and all. And, and God is using his people to make himself known so that grace that extends to more and more people might be to the glory of God, who calls, builds up, and sends his church. And so, I wanna close with this. If you could put up that image. Look at this painting once more, and listen to Karl Barth and what he has to say. He says, shall we dare turn our eyes in the direction of the pointed hand of Grunwald's John? We know whether it points. It points to Christ but to Christ the crucified. I think this is what you were saying, Nate. Or Nick, I can't remember, sorry. Uh, but to Christ the crucified, we must immediately add. That is your direction, says the hand. That's where you're headed. This Jesus who gives his life as ransom for many. And so that's why we gather around this table it reminds us of our witness, what we're called to proclaim in our life together. And so I pass on to you what was first entrusted to me on our night, the night that our Savior was betrayed. He took bread, he gave thanks, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the, after the supper, he took the cup and he poured it out. It's already been poured. Amen. Thank you, Francis. <laughs> he took the cup and he, and he poured it out. He said, this is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time that you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul says, 
Every time you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you are doing something. You're living out your vocation. You are proclaiming the saving death of our Lord until he comes again. Friends, this is your vocation, to point to Jesus, to be his witnesses. You are invited to come forward, take off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Light cups are juice, dark cups are wine. Um, These are the gifts of God for the people of God. I invite you to come forward and be a part of his witness, be his witnesses in the world. The good news is that you are doing this in us already. And we just pray now, God, that you would help us to move deeper into that calling, that you'd really give us that vocation, that our whole lives would be submitted to your lordship as savior, and that we would spend the rest of our time here pointing to you, Jesus, so that the world might know and experience your grace upon grace. God, would you do that in us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's why you're called to be a part of the church. If, if by grace you found yourself here, God's given you a task, a vocation, but it's grace that precedes that task. And you're a part of something, something bigger, something that's happening in the world. You're a part of Jesus' very own movement into that world. You, he's using you to incarnate his life so that the world might know him and love him. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and may it be with you always and may you go in peace, go and serve and love the Lord in Jesus' name, amen.